Good Wednesday morning, and today we have something a little different for you. John was speaking in Mobile, Alabama, and today we're going to listen to a talk he gave at a local church there at Christ's Redeemer Church. In addition, after this talk next week, you will hear some talks that he gave at a CMDA conference in Mobile, Alabama. So with that being said, enjoy today's talk. I'll just start by saying I'm just very thankful that Dr. Patrick has joined us this weekend uh, and encouraged our staff and our students to walk faithfully in the calling that they that the Lord would have them, specifically in medicine. Always encouraging to do that and to hear from him. And in a lot of ways, I owe my job, and this is a side note, Kim Donlin, I mean, uh, <laughs> Kim Garrett, you owe your job in some ways to him too. So we'll talk about that later. But he's encouraged doctors from Mobile that actually started Victory Health and the medical ministry through indirect ways. He, he had no idea he was doing it, but that's the story. He's been an encouragement, been a motivator, been a person of reason, a voice in the wilderness to the medical folks and to folks all around that are not medical to live out their faith, to listen to God's voice, to challenge their minds as we get bombarded and our minds get challenged all the time for outside reasons that are no good. <laughs> Dr. Patrick Charing is a physician in London. He's from Birmingham, not Birmingham, England. He also trained as a PhD helping 10 pounds two-year-olds in Jamaica to live through nourishment. It started uh, nourishment programs throughout the world in Jamaica, in the Congo. Uh, he's been to uh, Rwanda many times. He knows the, the hospital that we're going to. At first, I couldn't nail him down. Are you, are you uh, British? Are you Jamaican? Are you Congolese? Are you Canadian? He's been all of those things. He uses his gifts and his talents uh, wisely and for the Lord. It's taken him all over the world and so we're, we're really privileged to have him here tonight. So, John, if you would come up, we're, we're thankful that you're here. Well, it's astonishing for me to listen to that introduction. I don't recognize the person, and now you get me. But uh, I have four children and of, by natural means and one adopted. And he, the one who's adopted, knows Kibagora very well. Uh, we first went to Congo, uh, as it was Zaire then, it's now the non-democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, in the late 80s. Um, I have to be very careful because I get lost at this point very easily. Uh, that area of the world has played a major role in our lives. From the late 80s to 1995, we were in that area pretty well every year for several months. My wife, about twice as long as me. I actually had a, a deal with the dean of my medical school that I would not bother him with requests for promotion if I could have two months a year to disappear from the university and go to Africa. And I got the deal, uh, the best deal I ever made. It, it, my family have been totally transformed by it. Uh, my oldest daughter is a missionary in Malawi. She's been there for 20 years, picking up abandoned children off the streets. Uh, so I actually have 100 black legal grandchildren. I don't know all their names. Uh, that she and David have brought to maturity from abandoned children. And this year, the first one went to university. Quite an achievement. Uh, we ended up in North America by providence, and there's no time to tell you that amazing story, but um, there was a slight mistake of order. I went to Jamaica before I went to uh, Zaire. Um, I'm a blue-collar kid who grew up with a Marxist grandfather, and nobody in my family had had a serious education. Well, that's the British class system for you. I was the first one to go to university. Uh, my mother, however, was probably the best teacher I ever had. She realized God had given her a very odd little boy. She taught Sunday school for 35 years without a break on her own uh, in a scout's hut. 
uh, all the children had to learn a verse every week and I had to learn a chapter because she knew I could do it. Um, so I had scripture put into my mind in an incredible way. Then it so happened I won scholarships and things, ended up going to the same school that Tolkien had gone to a generation before me, uh, then went to university to medical school where I was bored stiff most of the time and played truant frequently to go rock climbing, and I was not a serious Christian. Although I did on Sunday go to church for about five years, and the choice was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott. Uh, London in the 1950s, I went to medical school in the 1950s. I know it's a long while ago, but I did. Um, I consider them to be the two greatest evangelical preachers of the 20th century. I'm biased, of course, but I can still remember their sermons, some of them, and people recognize when I'm teaching and preaching in America that I, I have been there. Um, but I lost my way, which most doctors do. About 70% of Christian, uh, Christians entering medical school will go for up to five years without any subjective sense of Christ in their lives, either in fellowship or Bible reading or prayer or even the Lord's Supper. You haven't actually lost your faith. You've just been drained and not, the church has not met our needs. Uh, that happened to me. And so I was an invisible Christian for 20 years. Uh, and then we went to Jamaica. Uh, that was because uh, when I met my wife, uh, I, was, I was smitten immediately, both by her beauty but also by her courage. She has only one functional arm. She had polio, age seven. I've never heard her ever complain about that. She's raised four children of her own and a lot more outside that. There was a problem we had to learn. How do you lift a baby up and bathe it or put it on your shoulder when you've only got one functional arm? It can be done. So uh, we were both career-minded. We were not going to have children, but we did get married and we were careless and shortly we had three. Um, and bringing up three children under the age of five with one arm is not easy. So I'd got all, passed all the exams I needed. I, I, I take exams for fun, you know, it's not a problem. Um, and uh, she said, I need you to stop doing internal medicine because you go out before the children are awake and come back when they're asleep. I need help. So I said, well, I'm bored and I'm not going to get a consultant position until I'm 30 and I'm only 26, so or 27, so I've got some years to fill in. The Brits never give you your permanent job till you're 30 at least. That's, I think, where Tolkien got the idea that hobbits don't grow up till they're 30. Um, so I did a PhD to see my children, which is an unusual thing to do a PhD for, uh, but it was good. And in the process, the Lord blessed me, and I invented a new technique, and that gives you control over a certain area of literature and all sorts of other opportunities. So when I'd finished the PhD, Sally said, you're not going back to internal medicine, are you? And it wasn't actually a question. You know how women can ask questions that are not questions? Yeah? It's brilliant. Uh, I should learn to do it one day. Um, do something useful, she said. She's always wanting me to do useful things. And this talk, which will come to Rwanda in a minute, or near Rwanda, certainly across in Kivu, uh, was her saying that again. Um, and in somewhere nice. You promised me we'd travel. So the technique I'd invented allowed me to attack a problem that no one else in the world could, because it was a new invention. And that problem was 10-pound two-year-olds, if you can imagine it, of which there are two varieties, one that world vision uses all the while, although it's only a very small percentage of the whole, but it, it's heartbreaking to look at. That's the, the children with the pot bellies and the flaky paint skin. Uh, it's called Krashiorko. Um, the other one, which is far more common and much bigger problem in many ways, is kids who look like little wizen old men or women, and they're only two or three years old, and that's called Merasmus. And the difference between the two actually has to be due to salt, uh, but 
that's a whole other story and I have to leave that on the side. But I went to the Wellcome Trust, said what I could do, and the Wellcome Trust, the world's greatest employer, said, good, we will pay. And so for seven years, I had the best job in the world, an academic job, honorary position in the uni University of the West Indies. I didn't have to write any reports. Uh, I, I was I, they wanted one letter a year of no more than one or two pages in which I said what I'd done in the previous year, what I'd wanted to do in the next, and how much it would cost, and they paid. There were three of us with these absolutely marvelous fellowships because their way of evaluation was not silly paperwork like you're all being slowly snowed under with. God said he'd never drown the world again, but he didn't add in paper, which is what looks to me, or, or you know, the electronic equivalent of that. But they sent three world-class scientists to Jamaica every January. Any world-class scientist would take a first-class travel to Jamaica in January, and uh, especially if they're from Canada or the north anywhere, and uh, a nice hotel. But they spent their time in the laboratory that we were working in, which had a little order attached to it. And having that level of intellectual expertise, watching you doing your work and saying, ah, you might change that. I went in the first instance for two years, but those visitors said, if you can keep those three guys together, they will finish the job. Uh, but it will take at least five years. And I was there for seven in the end. The children that we took into that unit had a 50% mortality rate when the unit started. When I left Jamaica, we went through 100 such babies and didn't lose one. And we were growing children at roughly 25 times the normal rate for age. One of the most beautiful experiences doing that work, the children were self-referrals from the ghettos of Kingston in Jamaica. Uh, one woman, poor, would say to another, look at my baby, what can I do? And they'd say, the TMRU is the only place that can save that baby. And they would use some of their little money to come up to the university hospital and uh, then find the TMRU and we talk to them and say, look, we have a good chance of saving your baby, but we would then get them to give permission to do it in a research context. Uh, it was a research unit. And they would go away leaving their baby with us. Now they were poor. They often didn't come back for three or four weeks. And during that time, we had totally changed that baby. And the unit had a fairly imposing entrance, so they always went round the back and came into the ward from the garden. And typically, they would start crying because they couldn't see their baby. And you'd have the great pleasure of saying, stop, your baby's here. And we would take the baby to them, and the baby would recognize them before they recognized the baby, because it had doubled its weight in 40 days, less than that. It's just one of the most beautiful things you could ever get to do. Um, all good things come to an end, and I ended up in North America, because Mrs. Thatcher canceled the program I was supposed to uh, join. I'd been promised. Uh, so I'm actually a refugee from Mrs. Thatcher. Um, I approve of many things she did, but you can't close down scientific programs one year and think you can refund them the next because they take 10 years to build. So we settled in in Ottawa. There's a lot more story to this than I can tell you, and it's all miracle. Uh, but shortly after we'd settled in Ottawa, um, my wife brought some missionaries home from church who knew Kibagora quite well, although they spent most of their time at Nundu on Lake Tanganyika, uh, a little bit further south. Nundu is the hardship station. I mean, Kibagora is just a practice for paradise, isn't it? I don't know of a nicer house that a physician has anywhere in the world than the one the director of Kibagora had overlooking Lake Kivu, and occasionally you'd see the ruined Zori with snow on the top uh, at the end of the lake. Uh, Nundu is much tougher, but that's where we went. And uh, 
I didn't want to go. These missionaries very quickly discovered that I knew as much about the treatment of a severe malnutrition as anyone in the world at that point. In fact, the three of us had done it. Um, and they said, you have to come and help us. We have a huge problem. And I asked them how big. I said, it's not that big. You're not making the measurements correctly. They said, come and help us. And I said, under my breath, no. And outside, well, in principle, perhaps. But my wife and children said, you're Jewish sabbatical. We're all coming. And I did the Gideon thing. Gideon's a hero of mine because God doesn't mind if you say, I can't do that. And I put about six barriers in the way. And then he removed them one by one. The last one was hilarious, really. I gave a lecture at the University of Toronto on the treatment of severe malnutrition in sick kids, Toronto. And after the lecture, a very black man came up to me and said, do you ever go to Nairobi? And I said, I'm trying not to. Why? And he said, I'm the professor of pediatrics in Nairobi. I would love our students to hear that lecture. I said, I'm actually going to Zaire, but we, we have to spend a day or so in uh, Nairobi to make connections, and that's going to break the bank because my kids have brought our party up to 10, and hotel bills for 10 are not cheap, even in Africa. And he said, oh, I can fix that. If you'll give a lecture, um, I can give you a free house. The university has one for as long as you want, so you can stay in Nairobi as long as you want. So I gave in at that point. And uh, I used to call my father on Sundays. My mother had died of Alzheimer's a few years before. And I called him and I said, Dad, how are you? You'd be interested that Sally and I and the children are going to Congo, what, what is now at that stage Zaire, now DRC, just across the, the river from uh, Rwanda. Um, and there was silence on the other end. And then he said, I said, are you all right? He said, yeah, I'm fine, but I've waited 47 years to hear you say that. Can you imagine your father saying that to you? He kept a secret for 47 years. My mother had been brought to Christ approximately by two missionaries who'd gone to the Congo with C.T. Studd, WEC, faith missionaries. She'd grown up in a Marxist family, so the woman who persuaded her to go knew this was a as far from Marxism as you could get, because WEC doesn't pay a salary to its missionaries. You pray for everything, and God had never let them down. On the third night, she got saved. Now she had someone to write to, so she wrote regularly, and they knew when she got engaged, when she got married, and when I was conceived. And when I was 47 years old, my father told me that they had prayed for me every day for 30 years till they died. Uh, when you're a faith missionary like that, you don't mind long prayer lists. They spent three hours a day in prayer. They prayed that I would become a Christian, that I would become a doctor, and that I would go to the Belgian Congo, which is what Zaire was. At which point I said, why didn't you tell me that earlier? I wouldn't have bothered trying to say, I don't want to go with that kind of burden to carry. But I didn't know what was going to happen. It was superb. It's, I could keep you for the next six hours talking about the things that happened, so I have to be very careful. Um, I knew I'd been watching the literature. that When we left Jamaica in 79, we'd solved the problem. But when American pediatricians arrive in a famine, the death rate doubles to this day because one of the reasons is you Americans are a little parochial if work hasn't been done by Americans, you seem to believe it hasn't been done. So there isn't a proper description in an American textbook yet. Uh, there isn't a British textbook because the proper treatment of severe malnutrition is so counterintuitive that most mums who think they know how to build to, to look after babies will refuse to do what I want them to do until I show them in great detail why it has to be done. It turned out that one of the first amazing things we discovered, well, that was before I got there, is that when you get that malnourished, protein is poisonous. So when you give a normal Western diet, even breast milk, to a child like that, you can kill it. Now, there's no time to explain to you why we worked out why over time, and we sorted all that out. And 
hopefully, in due course, even American medical textbooks. Well, I know I've had a couple of medical students tell we're now being taught that. So, but nineteen seventy nine to now is not quick, is it? But I'd been watching the literature. We went in the late eighties, so ten years or so, and I knew it was not the information was not transferring because what? Well, I'll leave that out for a bit. Uh, so I didn't want to go because I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I could run a nutrition program that worked when other people had failed. Uh, so off we went. And uh, I trained my children to look after these children. So all my children as teenagers spent their summers resuscitating malnourished children because we were in Central Africa every year for about 10 years. Uh, so as teenagers, they all had children die in their arms. Uh, but many more that they saved. In the Itumbi Mountains, just the other side of the lake from where you will be, there are actually quite a few little Nicholas and Jonathans because the Africans... No, I was my parent and uh, my children's parents. They were more important than I was. They called me the wise old man, that's all. But that's really beautiful. And they could do it. Not at the rate we did in Jamaica, but they could resuscitate children and get them back to health during a summer, a few of them in a mud hut. Um, but I came back a year later, and I could measure the decline in the program. Our techniques and our way of thinking does not transfer automatically. There are prerequisites to it that we don't talk about, and they are Christian. It's not an accident that experimental science only occurred in Judeo-Christian society in Western Europe. Nowhere else. It didn't happen in China. It didn't happen to the Greeks. It didn't happen to the Indians. Only in Western Europe. And then you took it over as well. Why? Well, that's not tonight's subject. I hope I've made you curious enough to want to learn more. Uh, maybe... I'll come back and teach you some more. But uh, the reason I do understand and make that clear for a while, in a way very quickly, anecdotally. So when I got back after the first year, one of the nurses that I had trained to resuscitate malnourished children had had his own child die of malnutrition. That was an insult. And I, I said to him, what happened? And he told me that he was going to lie by looking at the ground and not me. And so he gave me the answer he knew I wanted, that he hadn't fed him properly. But I knew that wasn't what he really believed. So I went and found my supervisor, who was an African who'd got a degree in nutrition, but still was not yet a Western scientist at all. But he was better. I said, I want to know what that guy really believes. He was back in about two or three minutes. He said, he believes that an evil spirit took his child's appetite away. And so he had spent his money rationally on the witch doctor, and the child had died. Don't laugh at animistic paganism. As an immediate explanation of life in Central Africa, it's better than Christianity. If half your children don't make it to maturity, if your crops fail apparently at random, if you have some of the worst governments in the world, where is the evidence of a God of love in that story? Not immediately apparent, is it? And yet the gospel is flourishing in Africa at a certain level. That again is another hour's lecture, so we'll leave that hanging. Um, I was appalled. And then I discovered that my supervisor had also showed the same disease because I was weighing and measuring children, using my children to do the work in villages all around the area, because I was aware that malnutrition rates changed by village, but I didn't know why. Um, and I hadn't managed to cover the whole area. Before I left, I'd given some money to my supervisor and said, I want the village in that corner of the catchment area. I haven't got survey data on it. Here's some money. When I come back next time, I'll give it to you. You can give it to me. Well, I asked him for the data, and he gave it to me. I went to my computer and put it in, and then I went back to him and said, this is fabricated. You didn't measure these children. 
and he was about to lie. I said, don't lie. I know you didn't do that. And he said, but it's about right. I mean, he'd done lots of clinics and malnutrition is always present. So he had made the data up because it was a long way to go. He got the money. He could give me some data. He thought it was fine. But it was, right. it was fabricated. I made him do it properly. And then at the end of the summer, I showed him how I could prove that when I thought he'd made some progress. Uh, you can catch students. I, I am, really hate students cheating. And I'll do anything to catch them. Uh, and there's a lot of cheating going on at the moment. I didn't give an, ex an information recall exam in my last 20 years in the university. Every exam was a five-hour open book exam which, in which they could go to the library too. And I sorted them out, uh, including finding two children, two young, <laughs> calling them children now, two students who would not have got into graduate school if it hadn't been for me because they were smart and not good at memorizing and dumping. Both of them are now professors. Uh, they wouldn't have got to graduate school without my mark. So... That failure to transmit into the African culture was upsetting me. So I was sitting around not doing good as my wife wanted, not sorting out the pediatric ward again to get it back to the same state eight months later. That's futility. To go on doing the same thing, expecting a different result is Einstein's definition of idiocy. Um, I said, I'm not doing nothing. I'm thinking. She said, it looks, like thinking to, it looks like doing nothing to me. And I said, that's your problem. And we had a good old-fashioned family row. We're very good at that. Um, she usually wins. And she did this time. She said, at least you could do a Bible study with the African graduates in the village who are doing nothing. You send somebody to university from an African rural village. They get a degree. They come back wearing a white shirt and they won't get their hands dirty. They're parasites. They won't do anything useful. There are no white collar jobs in an African village. Uh, we can't transfer our techniques easily. Uh, most mission hospitals cease to function within 10 years of the missionaries leaving in most of Africa at the moment. That will change in due course, but it's not there yet. It's getting there. I think I understand the process now. And then she said, I said, yeah, I could do that. She said, Use that stuff you're doing on Deuteronomy. I think they, they will relate to that. I said, okay. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting Bruce Walke, who is one of America's best Old Testament scholars. And he gave some lectures in Ottawa on covenant in the Bible. And he really got under my skin. A little later, we got to know one another even better, which was fun. But he said something that, was really astonishing to me about the Jews, about the children of Israel. Every year, Jews, Jewish people, they may be American, French, British, whatever, but Jewish people win nearly half of the hard Nobel Prizes. I don't mean the silly ones like peace, which are political and nonsense and sometimes given to cheats or ne'er-do-wells like Al Gore. Uh, that's what happens, but the real ones... Jews win, and they're embarrassed by it sometimes. If you read the Jerusalem Post when the, the Nobel Prizes are coming out, you'll sometimes find an editorial comment on this. They don't really understand why. They're more orthodox brethren who are a bit fringe now. They have an answer. If you ask them, why are the Jews so successful? They will send you to Deuteronomy 6. Um, and that's where my interest in Deuteronomy began. So I started this Bible study with my wife because she speaks fluent French. I speak French to a degree, but with the worst, worst accent. Uh, my son also speaks French fluently, so that was okay. Uh, but we had to go from French to Swahili uh, to the tribal language. And then a miracle happened. Uh, these young men, as they were, loved what I was doing. And I had to go to twice a week. And then... About the third session, one of them said, it's a pity we can't go from English to the tribal language in one go. And then another one said, we can. And it turned out that there was a, a young man about five kilometers away 
who had been born in that area and spoke the tribal language, which is tonal and lethal to speak if you haven't got good ears for tone, because you end up calling your grandmother a cow. You know, it's the same word to their, to us, but not to them, because they don't even know their language is tonal, but they hear it, of course. Uh, and he'd been educated in, in Tanzania, spoke fluent uh, English, uh, a Muslim who had become discontented with Christianity, like many African Muslims are. And then he had a dream, a recurrent dream of Jesus telling him to go and speak to the Christians. And of course he resisted, but the dream was so persistent in the end he gave in. He only had to hear the gospel once and he said, that's, that's the real story. And he got baptized and his wife. A few weeks later, he got another dream saying, go back to your birthplace. No reason given. He walked about a thousand kilometers to get there because he didn't have a lot of money. Up one side of Lake Tanganyika and down the other because we were about halfway down. And he, he was with a little Quaker mission where he was being helpful, but he knew that wasn't the reason he was there. And then he came along and he started translating for me. Well, to cut a long story short, within six weeks, I ended up with the most memorable teaching session of my life. The elders of the tribe found out what I was uh, teaching the young men and they, cre they convert en masse. Uh, they don't have the concept of the individual that we have. That's yet to appear. Um, and the elders called for me to come and talk to them about what I was doing and I did and then they told me what I had to do. They said, you have to teach everybody. So I ended up teaching what I'm going to teach you now to 6,000 people out of doors in the middle of Africa. I didn't have to shout. Mapendo had to deal with that. They had a row of D-cells about this long to run the megaphone. It worked, thank God. And at the end of the afternoon, uh, I had taken them through Deuteronomy 6, and I ended thus, I said, I am your older brother in the faith. The area we're talking about, where you're going to, had an incredible revival in the 1930s. It's called the Rwanda Revival. And you can still find people, a few very old people, who can remember dancing in the streets with joy because they were set free to a degree from evil spirits. Not completely, but to a considerable degree. But what has happened since is we did not provide them with teachers. So their services last for hours, and I've been in services with more than 10 choirs singing during the service. Three or four hours, they don't care, and they love singing. But the, the preaching is often in two languages, but it, it's performance. Each The translator and the preacher compete with one another to uh, give the most exciting presentation. And the content is minimal. At about this point, after this, they learned what I could do. They wouldn't let me see patients anymore. They said, that's a waste of time. Medicines on Frontier can do that. But we don't have anybody who can teach like you. And they thought three to six hours a day was about right. Uh, and I, I must say, it was amazing. A few years later, I had an even more amazing account when I, I spent two months in the refugees camps after the, uh, the Rwanda war because my wife was running three of them. And she said, they need you. I said, no, not something else, Sally. She said, yes. And I ended up there preaching every other day for about three to six hours. I was in tears and they were in tears and I was simultaneously the happiest man in the world because God had made me articulate. And that summer was the first time I gave the gift back, no strings attached, because my research in the area had been ruined. And I actually prayed, Lord, I've come to see my wife and I've got nothing to do. If you've got something for me to do, I'll do it. You make that prayer seriously, he'll take you seriously. Uh, Absolutely astonishing. Now, what is it about Deuteronomy? If I had the money, my research project, not research, my development project for Africa would be to get a good commentary on the book of Deuteronomy into the local language and given to every pastor. The first time I gave a commentary in 
in French to a pastor in the other side of the river in, in Kivu, he burst into tears. He said, I have never had a book like this before. Never had a book like this before. They vastly more impressed by bringing the Bible to, to life than anything one could do in the hospital, which is astonishing. But it's true. So Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. There's a lot here for us, especially for a church plant like you. If you ever have to give a commencement address at a college and you don't know what to do, plagiarize Moses. Deuteronomy is a commencement address. It is the instruction to the children of Israel about how they must live if they are to flourish. And we all want to flourish, and we're not flourishing in North America now, are we? Your divorce rates are higher than Massachusetts, although you claim to be born again and Massachusetts doesn't. Your sexually transmitted disease rates are higher than Massachusetts. The effect of the Puritans is more important for culture than recent evangelical conversion. Because so often it's somewhat mechanical. Uh, we've got to fix that in due course. But I'm very, very concerned about culture. Uh, you're talking about race all the while. It's not, it's not race, it's not prejudice, it's culture. Culture gets in the way if it's bad, and it can make things in the worst of places if it's good. So, what's it all about? Moses begins by re reminding them of their history a little bit in the first chapters, and then he says this, you have a gift from God, which you are not valuing sufficiently, but all the tribes around you, you'll find this in Deuteronomy 4 if you've got a Bible open, will recognize and acknowledge that our God is nearer to us than their gods. It's so overwhelmingly obvious, they won't even deny it. He then goes on to talk about what they have done. He said, you were at Sinai. God spoke to you in a language you could understand, accompanied by a small volcano and thunder and lightning. Now, some of you here may have had a, a pretty amazing conversion, but none of you had one like that, have you? Jews, scholarly Jews, say, we lost our free will for your benefit at Sinai. Because anybody who had that experience could not possibly ever again deny the real existence of God, could they? If you were there. You had no free will at that. God took away your free will, the Jewish free will. He doesn't do that to us. Have you thought why? Many of you pray for children and relatives who've gone astray, right? And you want God to show up, right? Why doesn't he? Because it's a love story. Our faith is a love story. And if you love someone... You cannot use force to make them love you, can you? You cannot overpower them. You've got to win them. You've got to leave the flowers on the doorstep, so to speak. And God does that. If you'll stop and think, you can say to almost anyone, is there nothing in your life that looked like gratuitous goodness just appearing out of nowhere? And almost everyone can think of such an example and I say, you can have much more of that, you know. And my life is full of it this stage. And all I want to make sure is people don't wait till they're in their 40s, as I did, to come alive to what the faith is actually like. The Spanish have a proverb that Americans should think long and hard about. They say that God says to everyone, take what you want and pay the attached price. And many evangelical Christians are actually more materialist than Christian. And God says, all right, you can do that. You're missing out. And there is a judgment coming for us too. That's frightening. But it's there. Read 1 Corinthians 3 if you don't believe me. So, Moses reminds them. And you remember what happened. When they heard that voice, they all said, we will obey. And Moses went up the mountain and they proceeded to break the first three commandments in order. I mean, 
if an experience like Mount Sinai won't make you good, then a sort of mediocre American conversion won't, will it? What will? God says, oh, over this people. Oh, he says, Moses says, he heard what you said and said, oh, that they would have such a heart and mind as this to keep my law, that it might go well with them and their children forever. But they won't. He knew that. So if an experience of God like Mount Sinai won't make you good, what on earth will? Is there any point? We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Moses says, no. He gives them the ten, he reminds them of the Ten Commandments, which I prefer to call the Ten Divine Intolerances because that gets up the nose of liberals. But you can rewrite them that way. I, the Lord your God, will not tolerate these ten behaviors. You can write it that way, and it's a good way to do it. Because it is legitimate intolerance that makes a stable society. I grew up in many ways post-Christian, but the Bible was still read in school when I was growing up in blue-collar Birmingham. And the street where I lived of some 400 houses, people did not lock their doors. We did not steal from one another. My mother, who had the same gift that I've got, and the same duties of teaching, and was loved across the city of Birmingham for, by women's groups. We never had a car. We didn't have a telephone. Uh, she would come back sometimes well after dark and have to walk for 10 minutes from the last bus stop through the still semi-darkened streets after the Second World War. And my father never bothered because there were no attacks on women. There was no divorce. The police rarely visited. People help one another, much as you still do. I mean, America's got the best of this. You're the most hospitable people on earth, especially in your smaller towns. Uh, New York, Washington, San Francisco, Los Angeles, that's not America. And you allow people from those places to present America to the world. I'd do a much better job for you. Whenever I come to America, um, I'm overwhelmed. Almost invariably, first of all, I don't like hotels. And so they arrange to take me into their homes. I go to the airport and somebody meets me. You can always recognize Christians looking for another Christian. I never had any trouble finding them. They don't need to carry bits of paper with my name on or anything like that. I usually don't manage even to buy them a cup of coffee. They won't let me. It, that's as it should be in a way. And it's wonderful and celebrate it and cultivate it and make sure it doesn't disappear. Uh, that's enculturated Christianity. Many of the people who are sucked into this, they benefit. That's what salt and light means. Salt destroys what is good and destroys what is bad and preserves what is good. So a Christian culture will spread out and it leads to edu good education, not what's happening at the moment. Uh, Things like hospitals, they're our invention, and now we're going to have to take them back again because they're being taken away from us. This church will have to set up a power of attorney program to stop you being killed at the end of your life quite soon. The church is the only place this can be done, in my view. But you've, you have got a lot of that, and you've forgotten about it. Let me just ask one question. Have any of you read de Tocqueville? Not a single hand going up. French aristocrat who writes the best book about why America, the American Revolution succeeded and didn't turn into a bloody mess like the French one. And Americans are not reading it still. The intellectuals know about it, uh, uh, but they're largely liberal, so they're, they're happy to keep you ignorant because they know what de Tocqueville said. He came here in his 20s, uh, a French aristocrat who'd survived, and he wanted to know why your revolution, you were soon amicable with Britain again and we'd be good friends forever. That didn't happen with the French Revolution. And he said, it wasn't until I went into the churches of America that I realized what it was. But he was frightened that it would become too naive and would rot into materialism. And that's an incredibly 
great prophecy. Now, you don't have to read the two volumes of de Tocqueville, but at least in your church library, you should get a few copies of the, the lovely series of uh, a very brief history of or a very brief introduction to uh, all sorts of things from Oxford. Uh, Blackwell, I think, published it. But Harvey Mansfield's little book on de Tocqueville, it's only about this thick, but it would start you off. You could have a reading group on that one. And it would be good. So what's happening here in Deuteronomy? Moses lays out the Ten Commandments. Now, let's test your biblical illiteracy. Can any of you raise your hand and tell me what phrase precedes the first thou shalt not in both Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20? You're allowed to answer too. No? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Could they get out of Egypt on their own? No. So grace introduces the law in the Old Testament. Grace brought them out of Egypt. And grace gave them the Ten Commandments. These are not impositions. These are gifts of grace. And where they are enculturated, where they become part of your thought without thinking about it, you get a stable society that can grow. And culture does not grow quickly. We're talking about centuries. When you go to Africa, the effects culturally are going to take 200 years. It's just beginning to happen. I mean, it was 200 years ago when the missionaries went to Nigeria. Central Africa, it's not yet 200. There are signs, not much more yet. South Africa, a bit more. But that's how long it takes. When Britain was reconverted to Christianity in the 5th, 6th century by the British sent by Gregory, uh, the evangelism took place very quickly. Gregory was very smart. He said the whole place was chaos, civil war worse than Rwanda. Uh, and when he heard about it, he said we need to send missionaries. And the missionaries were sent and they came back when they got to the channel and heard what was going on. And Gregory was tough. He sent them back, but with more instructions. He said, when you get there, you are not to preach. You are to set up your own community and let them see how you love one another. Which is, of course, the first thing that impacted the Gentiles in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Behold how these people love one another. If we can't love one another, we're not going to spread the gospel. Uh, and after a year, you can begin to preach. And evangelism took place up to the Scottish border very quickly. But it was four centuries before we had a king who could read and write. Four centuries before any evidence that the legislation, the beginning of common law, was building something that might be recognizably a Christian culture. It can grow. It, that's how slowly it grows. God is never in a hurry. I don't know why. So what happens here? I mean, you remember Abraham? I, I love his... Um, What's the word I want? It's narcissistic to a degree. You remember at the end where God says to Abraham, look, that's all yours. And by the way, your offspring will be slaves in Egypt for four centuries. And Abraham says, thank you, Lord. <laughs> he doesn't care about the kids. You'll die a ripe old age. But that's how long it takes. These processes are not quick. Genesis, uh, language, Adam, initially, it appears, he doesn't say anything in the first story. He, he probably doesn't know he can talk uh, it properly uh, without God around. And then God brings the animals to him and teaches him, you have classification skills. Uh, when he first sees Eve, is the first time we really get a human response when basically he says, wow. Uh, it's a slow process. Uh, the patriarchs, didn't get to taking God seriously till quite well on in their lives. And you don't, for instance, hear of anything from Isaac that involves God very directly, except that he's learned he's a patriarch and he's got to pass on his genes, although he doesn't call them genes, to the next generation. But is that surprising? I mean, if your dad had laid you out on an altar with a knife over you, do you think you'd recover from that experience easily? Not surprising to me that Isaac loved his mother, but he didn't say, have much to say about his dad after that. 
But things are being learnt in the process. There's a lovely series of talks uh, given by Leon Cass, and Leon Cass's book on Genesis is superb, about Abraham learning to be a father, a husband, a patriarch. Uh, not quick. Not quick. So what happens next? Well, then you get to the heart of it all. Deuteronomy 6. If that experience of God and being given the law has still not served to make you good, what will? And Moses says there is reason for hope. The central sentence of Judaism is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. Anybody tell me what comes next? Say it out loud, because if you get it wrong, you'll never forget the right answer again. If you're in university and somebody asks a question you don't know the answer, guess and be wrong in front of 400 people. You'll never forget the right answer again. When you don't answer, you pass up on a 100% learning experience. So somebody tell me what follows. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your, all your soul and all your strength. Now, you know there's a catch, but play the game. Hmm? No, you, not you. You've listened to me before on this. Did you hear what he said? How many of you thought, and your neighbor is yourself? Come on, be honest. Yeah, some of you, and you're wrong. And you will remember that forevermore. That's in Leviticus, Leviticus 19. Normally, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, but on that occasion, he quoted Leviticus. And Deuteronomy is rich in an entirely different way. He says, these things shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children when you rise up, when you lie down, when you go on a journey, when you sit at table. And not in the synagogue note. Not in church. This is family. And the Orthodox Jews will tell you it's dad's job. Now, women, you must stop doing the things that need to be done if it's the man's responsibility. Then you have the more important activity of making the guy do his duty. Every out-of-ordinary move that we've made in our family started with Sally. She said, look, we weren't going to have children then. They came along because we were careless. Uh, she found she loved them. And then she said, okay, I need more help. You've got to change your work. There wasn't any question about that. And so I did a PhD to be around and to see her. And then she said, well, this is better for the children Find somewhere nice to do the next bit. And we lived in Jamaica for seven years, which is a marvelous place to bring up children. No television, uh, no screen pollution. Uh, then that comes to an end. And the missionaries come along and she says, we, we'll, we'll, I'm going to start planning. And she buys the tickets, gets it all organized. We go, we go to Africa. And then when the science bit doesn't work, she says, do a Bible study. And step by step, my life is turned upside down in the best possible ways. Uh, women, you've got to make the man do the father's job. And the most important one is that he has got to make sure that his children hear all the stories of the Bible from his mouth before the age of seven, if possible. Why? Well, you all know that children will even turn the television off, won't they, for you to read to them. My grandchildren will sit with Sally reading to them for hours because she's a good reader. They don't need a television or anything else. And you, you must have noticed the way it works. Um, occasionally when Sally's not available, they'll come to me, but they know I'm not to be trusted in some ways. So they bring me a book that I'm bored by immediately and I've read many times before. So I try and shorten it. Not enough of you read to children. Granddad, have you forgotten how to read? They brought me a book. They know every blessed word in it. And I'd better read it right. Up until about the age of seven, they have this need for word-perfect stories. God made them that way. And they have a memory like you never have again. If you want to give your children some self-image uh, massaging, which is perfectly genuine, when they're... Five and above, 
Challenge them to learn a psalm by heart. They will beat you every time. They remember everything you say, I think, in the first five years, without any effort at all. They learn a language, after all, without any formal training. And if you build, bring them up in an area where three languages are been, being spoken, they'll speak three languages without any effort also in those first five years, seven years. God made us that way. That's the basis of classical education, grammar, logic, rhetoric. And that, of course, came from Christians, but it came before from the Jews. But for Christians, the medievals got it right. Our school system is a mess. If I had my way, I'd blow up the faculty of education. I hold it responsible for all the damage that has been done to education in the last little while. I have never met a single teacher who can say to me, what I learned in the faculty of education is essential to the, my job as a teacher. It's not. The best description of a teacher I know is in Wendell Berry's lovely novel, Watch With Me. If you want a, a lovely love story with a really deep underpicture, uh, it's got depth to it. It's the book to get, Watch With Me. Wendell Berry, an American writer. Amazingly, three of my favorite authors at the moment are all American. But in that book, which is a love story between a gawky great farmer and a petite little schoolmistress the, at the beginning of the 20th century when they were still horse and buggy times. So they both look at one another and say, make a very good spouse for someone, not realizing they're made for each other. And the story is about how they learn the truth. But Wendell Berry's, as a writer, is so brilliant, he can describe the two characters in a sentence each. He says of Ptolemy, the farmer, he was a big man whose clothes looked as though they had been taken by surprise 20 minutes after he put them on. Some of you are married to such a guy, you know, uh, and you certainly know of them. Miss Minnie, on the other hand, was the exact opposite. She was petite, organized, and everything done in her classroom worked like clockwork. If a boy misbehaved, his father would be spoken to and everything would be put right in the appropriate fashion. But... This is what Wendell Berry says about Miss, Min Miss Minnie. Miss Minnie went to teacher's college where she learned many cunning techniques, which she never subsequently used because Miss Minnie loved children and she loved books and she taught by merely introducing the one to the other. That also solved another problem that had bothered me for years, 1 Timothy 3 and leadership in the church. One thing stuck out like a sore thumb. I realized very quickly that the difference between other organizations and the church is the church has better instructions as to what to do. The people who run the church are not in that position because of a skill they have. When you need somebody to oversee the accounts, you don't want an accountant or banker or somebody in the finance area. You want the most upright and honest people you've got in the church. You hire the skills, but character is what rules the church in 1 Timothy 3. But what does apt to teach mean? Well, that's character too, as I realized, and Miss Minnie represents it. Because you can't teach people to teach because it's two loves you suddenly become a much better teacher when you start to love the students. Most academics love their subject. I didn't, love, I didn't care about the students for 20 years. But they picked up enough to get under my skin, and that changed. I got an award for, for teaching, which I had no right to. Uh, uh, an Asian professor in the department said, how long do you spend preparing undergraduate lectures? And I said, well, 20 minutes would be a bit excessive, wouldn't it? And he said, you're not actually joking, are you? I said, frankly, no. He said, I spend hours and they trash me. You do nothing and they give you an award. I said, I didn't ask for it. Because, of course, I had learned by that stage, because I was a Christian, that what was happening in education was much more a cultural and an ethical problem than anything else and I was out to be honest about what we're doing and to call memorizing and dumping what it is and start teaching them how they should really learn. But that's a whole nother lecture. 
T.S. Eliot saw it coming in the 1930s when he wrote in Choruses from the Rock, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now you have deans of departments who think that we have an information-rich environment. Sure you do. And the problem is you can't tell good data from bad data. The problem in the modern world is not information. That's why I stopped giving information recall exams. Everybody's got in their pockets something that will get more information out than I could get when I was a student, but they can't think about it. My job is to teach them how to think about it. Uh, logic is non-existent. I can say this to medical students and they'll write it down unless I stop them and say, don't you see there's a problem there? I taught the biochemistry of exercise and nutrition and I would say, if you're fit, you don't need exercise. If you're sick, you shouldn't take it. Now, you must see there must be something wrong with that somewhere, right? Well, it's perfectly true, isn't it? If you're fit at this moment, you don't need any exercise. And if you're sick, uh, particularly with certain illnesses, viral illnesses are much worse if you're exercising when you contract them on the whole. So both statements are true. So what's wrong? Now, a medieval monk would have been laughing before I'd finished the sentence, but hardly anybody in the university would. It's got a name, it's called the undistributed middle, and you can work out for yourself where it is. And you see it all over the place. The world is not divided as I did in your head. I divided it into fit and sick, either or, which you do all the while. But there are very few fit people, very few sick people, and in the middle there's a load of slightly, slightly lazy slobs like me. That's the world as it is. So we have got to renew education as well. And in the church, that education has got to start with serious study, not only of scripture, but of other things. You do need one committee, and that's one that should be thinking about education. And I can suggest lots of things you should read to do it. But I have to finish. Your pastor is, you know, fidgeting a little bit, so time has come to the end. Uh, and there, there is one more important point to make uh, that you need to think about. And that is this question of how you move on with your children. Okay, you, you just go for the stories, and they'll remember them all. And the important point there is that Jewish history is the only history in the world which is true to a, a large degree. All the rest are revisionist. We turn our politicians and others who are thugs and miscreants of various sorts, and we turn them into some sort of quasi-saint, which they're not. The Jews are honest, so what's the recurrent refrain of Kings and Chronicles? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the... It's ten to one on that he's going to do evil. Doesn't, don't you see why that makes Jewish businessmen more acute than everyone else? Because they know it's ten to one on, this guy's trying to cheat me. And that's not nice. And church is now all about being nice, isn't it? That's not as it used to be. Try this greeting after church. Don't say, how do you feel? Ask, how is it with your soul? That's an immediately different conversation, isn't it? That was the Puritan response. You didn't ask people how they felt. You asked them how their soul was doing. And there's nowhere that I'm aware of in the New Testament that makes you responsible for how you feel. But you are responsible for how you think. And that's in every epistle. If you've understood my argument, you must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, that doesn't mean that won't be felt. God coming into your life will be felt, but that's not you doing it. God can do the emotion, the feeling bit. The happiest summer of my life in a refugee camp. God did that. It was tragic, but I was doing what I was made for in a way I'd never done before, and I felt his pleasure, and there's no pleasure like it. It's addictive in the very best way. So this is your job, to get back to Judeo-Christian thought and Judeo-Christian education. And particularly, this is going to have an impact on medicine. Everything to do with sex, uh, with death, with suffering, and with justice has got to come back uh, to the Christian base. I mean, in the university nowadays, I get these silly justice warriors. 
sadly usually women who go hissy fitting with the greatest of ease but i i'm immediately cu uh, accused of white patriarchy and all the rest of it and i let them go on till they've dug a deep enough hole for me to push them into uh because uh you bring them down to practicalities to say, what have you actually done in practice for black people? And even the black students haven't actually done anything. Have you been and worked in the inner city in the poor parts? Have you done anything of that sort? And then I tell them what our family has done. And of course, the ones who've had enough of this anyway start applauding, it's all over. And that's what should happen in a Christian environment. Yeah. It was quite a struggle to get Victor, who's our black grandson, son, uh, through all the red tape from post-Rwanda war uh, to Canada. And he's now a lawyer with the federal government. What could be more satisfying? Uh, if he went to, to, to Rwanda, they'd probably kill him. Because it, they, when you have a minority tribe in control, how are they going to stay in control if education is freely distributed? They're not. You've got to be very careful while you're there, but you can think about that. You, don't, you won't talk about it there until you're very sophisticated in how you talk. But you have listened with great attention, and it's Sunday, and I'm sure it's much later than I think it is. Uh, so let's close with prayer. Father, we, we thank you for the riches that are in your word. From nature to the book of truth that you have given us, but above all, to the witness of the Spirit within. And we pray that you will make us more sensitive to your leadership and that we may understand that love for us is obedience to you. For Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you guys all for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a comment, leave a review, or share it with a friend. And if you have a question for Dr. John, you can ask that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can check the links in the description below. Thank you guys all so much, and we will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.